0: This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. How are you, Adam? sir.
1: Oh, I'm great. I'm very excited for today's show.
0: Uh, As am I. Um, Our guest this week is a pioneering, trailblazing... Sports writer and journalist, 47 years as a sports writer, 34 with the venerable Los Angeles Times. She's covered 18 Olympics, 30-plus Stanley Cup finals, NHL lockouts, maybe we'll talk about that, NBA finals, Super Bowls, World Series. She's the 2005 winner of the Hockey Hall of Fame's prestigious Elmer... Ferguson Award, and she's the first female journalist to be honored with a plaque in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Please, let's
2: give a big welcome to Helene Elliott. Wow, thank you. You're, you're building this right. up. I don't know if I can uh, live up to all this. Well, I said this, um, just before we,
0: uh, started recording, and I, I think it's only appropriate to, to say it now. Helene, you are one of my heroes. And I don't use that term lightly at all in any way. Uh, I think you know how much respect I have for you in all of our dealings over many, many years, but you are truly one of my heroes and, and I have to say, um, you've seen my kids grow up. Uh, we've uh, run into each other many, many times. Uh, and I've always used you as an example with my daughter, um, who you've seen many times when she was little and as she's grown and now she's, um, a film and English major at Berkeley. Um, I've always used you as an example, of There is nothing that you can't accomplish because when you were uh, a little girl growing up in Brooklyn, I don't think there were many female sports writers on the scene. And you were, uh, when you broke into the business, one of the first, there were a few that came before you, but not many. I'm sure those female sports writers were your heroes, um, but you did crash through um, a male-dominated profession. Um, I read your farewell column uh, in the LA Times uh, published uh, in the last day, and uh, you talked about um, on the press level there was only a urinal There was no bathroom even for a female journalist. So, um, welcome to the show. Adam and I are so excited to have you here. And uh, uh, what a career. What a run. Uh, I would love to talk about how you got started. How did you get into this business?
2: Well, I just always loved to write. Um, Even as a kid, I would keep little journals and write poems and write for the school. Uh, we had a, in junior high school, we had a literary magazine. So I remember writing poems and things. And I used to have a great memory for numbers. Now, of course, I can't remember anything, but as a kid, <laughs> I used to have all the home run hitters, you know, memorize, you know, 534 and 5, oh, 512 and, you know, who hit how many and and all that. And I And it just seemed natural to me. Why not put, sports and writing together. And I didn't know that, you know, there weren't women out there doing that. I just thought, why not? It just made sense to me. And I remember in high school talking to my college uh, advisor and she said, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And she laughed at me. And I said, no, why, why, you know, why are you laughing? Why not? Women can't be sports writers. Pick something you can reasonably expect to do. Which I, you know, yeah, it's kind of like, okay, maybe no woman or many women hadn't been doing it, but why discourage somebody like that, you know? And I'd say, you know what, you're going to face really big odds against it, but, you know, here's what you can do. But it it was just so discouraging that I just decided, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try. At least I have to try and and see how far it goes. And uh, I just kept going. And,
0: and where was your first job as a, as a sports writer? Where were you?
2: Um, not counting my junior high newspaper, getting a, uh, an article in that. Um, <laughs> I guess um, mm. I, had, I went to Northwestern University for um, college, and uh, I had a summer internship at the Miami Herald. And I remember they sent me out to cover all kinds of things. They sent me out to cover the fights in Miami Beach, which were then a big, big thing. And I didn't know because I'd never been to a a prize fight before. But you sit in the first couple rows and they said to me, oh, boy, you're you're not wearing good clothes for this. I said, what do you mean? So you sit in the first two rows, you're going to get splattered with sweat and with blood. And I'm thinking, ooh, what is, what is this all about? But it's true. It was just the most astonishing thing. I, I, I never realized it. And uh, I learned very quickly, you don't wear good clothing to uh, if you're sitting that clo- close at a boxing match. Oh,
0: that's unbelievable. Yeah, oh my and gosh. and, and what, was your, what was your first exposure to hockey?
2: Um, I had a friend in junior, junior high school. Her dad had played semi-pro hockey. And uh, w- there were three of us, three really good friends. And one day this friend's dad took us to a Rangers game. And I went, wow, this is fun. I like this stuff. I mean, I'm a clod. I can't, you know walk two steps without falling over my own feet and here are these people skating and doing all these amazing things and shooting the puck and and being graceful and i went wow this is this is neat i I like this and to me at that point i mean i'm this kid from this little corner of brooklyn you know watching the rangers play in places like montreal and toronto that was so exotic to me i just thought that was the coolest thing ever and I said, you know, what? I like this. I'm going to start listening on the radio and watching on TV, and uh, I just fell in love with the game.
0: So, when you started as a sports writer and and being one of the first females in the industry, how how did teams react to you? How did players react to you when when you were on the beat and and doing your what you do so brilliantly after a game, uh, gathering up quotes and writing your post-game story. What was that like for you?
2: It was strange because, you know, there were still teams that didn't let women sit in the press box. I mean, Shirley Fishler, Stan Fishler's wife, uh, went through it before I did, and she had a tougher time. Uh, but, you know, there was still this air of suspicion that if you were a woman and you were doing this, you were just looking for a husband, you know, and it, it couldn't be that you were actually a journalist and you loved the sport and you wanted to write about the sport. There was always some kind of suspicion that you had an ulterior motive somehow. But um, a lot of times there was outright hostility. Um, and there were a lot of teams that would not give us equal access. I mean, I remember standing outside locker rooms, you would have to talk to a team, publicity person and say, I want to speak to, uh, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury, and the team publicity guy would have to go into the room, talk to to Fleury, and Fleury would have to agree to come out to talk to me. And sometimes after a loss, athletes didn't want to come out, and I I can't blame them for that. Um, It's an extra effort. It's, you know, something that they weren't particularly keen about doing. So we, we were at a, a distinct disadvantage because we weren't afford, afforded the same access that the male reporters were
0: yeah so all the mail all the males would go into the into the locker room or into the dressing room and be standing with the players and talking mm-hmm. to all of them anybody that they want and you were forced to stand
2: outside mm-hmm though I have to say hockey was still ahead of the other sports. But, I mean, like, in Toronto, it became such a stupid thing because Harold Ballard was a, you know, uh, uh was just absolutely against it, and he made a big show of it. And it's – I wasn't on a crusade. I was just trying to do my job, as we all were. And, you know, he turns it into this big tabloid uh, exploit, and it that's not what it was. And, um you know, to its credit – the NHL, I think, was just so – eager uh, to have coverage of any kind. I think that they realized in the early stages that, hey, you know, female reporters are going to help promote the sport. They're going to write about the sport. They're going to help hockey. Why not let them in? And I remember Al Arbor was very good with the Islanders about that. Um, He was very supportive in the early years to Mary Flannery, particularly who was uh, working for the New York Daily News then. Uh, Laurie Mifflin uh, was covering for the New York Rangers. Uh, covering the Rangers for the Daily News. And um, the officials of those teams were very enlightened and very progressive, but it certainly wasn't that way across the whole league.
0: Right, right. Adam?
1: Well, I just want to say as a a lifelong Toronto Maple Leafs fan and somebody who loves the history of the team and grew up here, I am not surprised at all (laughs) by your comments about Harold Ballard. Uh, There are interviews from the CBC, from the archives that, Show just what his views were, but what amazes me about you, Helene, is is when I was doing the research, you talked about um, a, a few minutes ago, waiting outside of the dressing room. I don't think people quite understand what that would have meant for you, because you've gone to the game, you've seen the game, you've got a you've got a a, a, a recap to write, you got to get this to print in the morning, and. You could be waiting out there for hours, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, right? It's not like it's not like it was instantaneous. You were waiting there for long periods of time to get the same quotes that all the male reporters were allowed to get in. And if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong here, women, it, it wasn't that they didn't want you in the dressing room. It's that it wasn't like allowed, except by court order in certain jurisdictions. Is that true?
2: Yeah. um, Some teams, again, were progressive and did allow us in. They would talk to the players or the team captain, the alternate captains, you know, and kind of discuss it. Or some teams would uh, before ask us to wait a minute or two and say, hey, you know, we're having some female reporters come in, which is fine. You know, give them a couple minutes warning if that's what made people feel more comfortable. You know, that was perfectly fine. But I remember I was working for the Chicago Sun-Times and they sent me to cover a notre dame football game and there was a well he was older to me then i don't know how old he really was but uh there was a a guardian of the door by a gatekeeper and he kept pushing me further and further away from the door to the room to the point where i was locked outside the gates i had to go (laughs) back around to get into the stadium. I mean, it it was just absurd, uh, in so many instances. But again, I think we, we really do need to credit people like Al Arbor who made it easier and, and, you know, said to the players, Hey, these reporters are doing their jobs. You'll treat them with the same Mm -hmm. respect you treat the other reporters. And that helped an awful lot.
0: What about players? Because, uh, you know, in your, in your column, uh, yesterday, um, you wrote about some players who refused to talk to any of the reporters mm-hmm. if there was a female sports writer amongst them. Right. Did you yeah, actually
2: I, experience players who didn't want to talk to you? Absolutely. It was ba- uh, mostly baseball players. But, yeah, and um, there was a time I was uh, when I was at Newsday and I was covering the Mets, and Dave Kingman started following me around the locker room, and he was like – mimicking taking notes he was pretending he was like taking notes on me and it was just kind of very you know he's a big guy and it just kind of makes you a little nervous to have this guy looming over your shoulder and I'm trying to interview other players and trying to do my job and he's just standing there and just being really creepy and uh you know it was just so unnecessary you know why go out of your way to follow me around the locker room I wasn't bothering him I wasn't talking to him at all but you know he he just just decided to, to, to follow me around the room. And it was very uncomfortable.
0: Let's talk about the the nuts and bolts of, of what you did. For example, Mm -hmm. the LA Kings are playing Saturday night and you're on the beat and you're covering the game and you're going to write a post-game report. How does that happen? What do you do? What's your deadline? How quickly do you have to have your column written? And walk us through that.
2: Well, I have to say, as a, speaking as an old person, uh, business has changed an awful lot. Um, you know, now at the LA Times, um, the deadlines starting next week are going to be three o'clock in the afternoon. So mm. if the Kings play on a Saturday night, you're not going to see that in the paper until Monday. Um, you, it'll be posted on the website, uh, you know, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, but you won't see it in print until two days later. But how it used to be for many years was, uh, uh, let's say the Rangers were home or the King, let's say the Kings were home. You'd go to the morning skate, you'd talk to players, you'd see what the lines were, the defense pairs, you'd see if anybody's missing, you kind of, uh, you know, talk to the coach, you talk to the players about maybe a previous game, or if you have an idea for a feature story that you're working on, you maybe grab a player or a couple of players and and keep the quotes uh, in your notebook or in your voice recorder. And then, uh, you know, you go to the game later, and sometimes you use the quotes from the morning skate as kind of a launching pad for the column that you write the next day. Um, it, it varies. You know, sometimes you think you have this great material and then something happens in the game and poof, it all blows up. So you all have to just kind of change uh, tactics uh, on the fly. But uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, there's a lot of adrenaline involved. You, you really need to be <laughs> composed on deadline and uh, not everybody can do that. And there are times I kind of would look at my watch and go, wait a minute, I swear, that 10 minutes have passed. I thought it was only one minute and 10 minutes have gone by. So, uh, you know, you're living your life on deadline. If you don't file on deadline, they'll find something else to fill that space and uh, you'll be out of a job pretty quick. So there's no, there's no excuses. You got to get that story filed.
0: Well, I used to see you a lot after games and uh, I always knew when you had some time to linger and talk and when you were on deadline, because when you were on deadline, you had a little bit of a crazed look in your eye and you were and you were uh, like, hi, how are you? I got to go. And you're hustling towards the dressing room uh, to get in there and to get your quotes after the game. And I, of course, I always uh, respected that you were working and didn't have time to chit chat. But whenever you did, of course you stopped and we did catch up, but I could always tell when, well, yeah. she's working, she's yeah. working. Look at her go, look at her go.
2: Yeah. We used to have several different editions so that you could get in the score say if they played on a Saturday night, if you filed by like 10 o'clock you could get a story in, you know, because the L.A. area is so big, we would have different editions uh, because it takes so long just to put newspapers onto a truck and get them out to the stores where you buy them. Um, so there would be like a 10 o'clock deadline and a 1030 and then an, uh, an absolute final of about pretty close to midnight. So, you, you know, for the first story, it would be kind of a play by play, you know, maybe some observations if the coach changed the lines or or, you know, mixed up the defense pairs, things like that. Maybe you use some of the quotes from the morning skate uh, then, you know, you add in game detail and then you add in post-game quotes later. So you take out some of the stuff that you had earlier. Um So you're constantly revising, you're constantly analyzing, you're constantly just thinking ahead and uh, not only trying to analyze what went on, but, you know, how am I going to follow this up? Like sometimes uh, they don't play again for another couple days and you, you kind of want to especially now, I think too, is you want to look forward, you want to cast things forward um, and just kind of give your readers a sense of what patterns are developing, what trends are you seeing, you know, who's slumping, who's who's hot, what does that mean for, you know, the, the fourth line, uh, you know, what does that mean if, if the top pair defenseman is hurt, you know, how do the, you, you're just trying to wrestle a lot of moving parts at, at one time.
0: So let's talk a little bit about, uh, the 2005 call you got, uh, letting you know that you were the recipient of the Elmer Ferguson award, um, for brilliance in sports writing and, um, immortalized in the hockey hall of fame. What was it like when you got that call and what was your feeling? What was your reaction?
2: Well, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, on my Facebook page, I posted um, my the LA Times let my husband write a column about that phone call and and what that was like. And uh, I remember it very well. I was sitting here, I was working on a couple of different things and the phone rang and it was Kevin Allen, who was president of the Hockey Writers Association, telling me I had won the Elmer Ferguson Award. And I said, thank you. Uh, let me get back to whatever it was I was doing. And my husband's office was about 50 feet away and you could call out to each other from where my desk is to where his was. And um, at some point, I don't remember when, I mean, after a few minutes, I said, oh, that, that phone call I just got, that was Kevin Allen. I won the Elmer Ferguson Award. And my husband started shrieking. I mean, just screaming. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my God, our neighbors are going to think somebody's being murdered here. But he just like just, <laughs> just me down and yelling and, you know, I'm sitting there and I had a story to do. So that's what I'm trained to do. You know, I, I was finishing up whatever I was working on, but, uh, that was a lovely moment. And, and uh, on my Facebook page, I uh, pasted a copy of uh, the story he wrote and he talked about that. And that was uh, that was lovely. That was a, a very nice moment.
0: Yeah. I, 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 read Dennis's column and it was, mm-hmm. it was beautiful and very heartfelt and uh, he's a brilliant writer in his own part for uh, being able to capture the essence of you in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, very special very special. Was. I, I was actually I was actually um, um, standing and I'll, and I'll never forget this I was standing near you. And it was after it was publicly announced that uh, you had won the Elmer Ferguson Award. And when Gretzky uh, came up to you, and 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 very quietly said to you, uh, congratulations on the award. And it was after a game, and you were um, going to interview somebody or going into the the visiting team locker room. Um, but it w- there was a moment shared between the two of you, and I happened to be standing right right next to you when it happened, and and I could tell um, that it, it it was a special moment. But you were busy and you had to go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Wayne, I
2: mean, the ultimate class, that man was just so classy. I, just to, you know, change the topic a tiny bit here. But I, I remember uh, I found out somehow that Wayne was helping financially support Bill Flett. And apparently Wayne helped out a lot of players. The, who the, would the,
0: for, for one of the first guys with a full on beard with the Flyers mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. in the uh, early 70s.
2: Cowboy Bill Flett. And
0: Cowboy Bill.
2: I believe they had played together in the WHA and, um, he had fallen on some hard times and had some medical issues. And Wayne very quietly was taking care of all this for him in terms of, you know, finances, which must have been a terrible burden for him and his family, for Flett's family. And I found out about it and I thought, wow, well, people should know about this. People should know what Wayne Gretzky is doing for this guy. And he just did not want me to write about it. He just he didn't think it was something that deserved attention. And apparently he was doing it for more than one person, Wayne was. He was helping out a lot of people. And I've I've always admired him for that. He doesn't need the spotlight. He doesn't need the headlines. He doesn't need people to know all these things that he was doing. He was doing it out of genuine respect and affection and friendship. And I've always admired and respected Wayne so much for that.
0: Well, you talk about Wayne and, and you were here in LA, um, um, before the Gretzky trade and you were here. Oh, that's right. That's right. But, well, let me ask you this. What do you, uh, credit to the, the, the rise of hockey in the, in the Southwest and, um, the creation of the, of the Anaheim Ducks and San Jose Sharks? And all these American League teams, a whole American League division, and um, so many young players playing minor youth hockey in Southern California and Southern California producing some uh, great NHLers and and future NHLers. What started all that?
2: Yeah, I, there would not be an NHL Sunbelt expansion without Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky, there would not be Anaheim Ducks without Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky gave hockey a human face, an appealing human face. I mean, he, you'd walk on the street and you would pass him and not know he's Wayne Gretzky because people had this idea of, of, you know, he's such a great player. He must be like seven feet tall and, you know, have incredible muscles and everything, but he just looks like an average guy. It, when you see him walking down the street. And here's this supposedly average looking guy doing these incredible things. And he had, he knew he got it. He knew he was there, not just to play, but to promote the game, to grow the game. Mm-hmm. And he did all kinds of appearances and promotional things. And he made sure the team went out and did promotional efforts all over the community. Um You know, it it would be too much to think that, okay, Wayne Gretzky comes to L.A., people start playing hockey. That takes a long time. It develops over a period of years. But do you think Trevor Moore of the Kings would have started playing hockey if Wayne Gretzky hadn't been here and his family hadn't liked hockey? I mean, you you just see it now, the growth of uh, not only in the NHL, but, I mean, look at major colleges. There's so many kids from Southern California Playing in major college programs and in the minor leagues, it's and it's all because of Wayne Gretzky because he put a human face on hockey for the NHL. He's the best thing that ever happened to the to the NHL. Truly is.
1: Yeah, Helen, I got a qu- I got a question for you in terms of um uh, of that era. And what what year did you start uh, with the LA Times? Nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so um, this would have just You know, uh, you would have seen some unbelievable characters walk through the form. Obviously, on the on the uh, Lakers side, you got the bus family um, uh, and and, you know, and obviously Wayne Gretzky. And so it's the end of the Magic Johnson era, beginning of the Wayne Gretzky era. But what I want to ask you about is the form, Uh, the form itself, that building. Because there are so many amazing stories. Obviously, the Showtime book and the Showtime series kind of illustrate how there was a nightclub and and uh, the way that Jack Kent Cook ran it before the Bus family ran it. And in your experience, what made that building such a special place um, to, to to play sports, basketball and hockey, specifically?
2: Well, for so many years, it was just so glamorous. It was you know, it was this, it was new, and uh, you know it's hard for people now to remember that, but um, it was new. It was glamorous. It was uh, this incredible place that they, they built by themselves. Um, It was kind of, it wasn't in downtown. It was in Inglewood. It was, it it was so distinctive, the shape of the building, uh, the colors, everything was very distinctive about it. And I'll, I'll tell you a brief story about I was there for a hockey practice one day and uh, they had a very, uh, unusual, a concourse kind of level where you could stand and watch. And Jerry West came out of the Lakers office and he saw me and we just started chatting a little bit. And I believe it was the penguins who were in town and they were practicing and he's watching them. And then he got, after like two minutes, he goes, that's Mario Lemieux, right? Just Im- immediately picked Lemieux out, which I always thought was just incredible. Um, I just, uh, I just love that building. Although, uh, you know, you don't want to romanticize it too much because the restroom situation was terrible in that building. You know, there were always <laughs> the restrooms there. And uh, I think every building that's been built since then has, has gone out of their way to make sure there's enough restroom lines because, uh, enough restrooms that so there are no lines because that also means that people aren't <laughs> at concession lines if they're waiting to get into the restrooms.
1: Right. Right. You know, it's 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 funny because the uh, by the way, for anybody that's watching this, that's not a huge NBA fan. Jerry West, legendary basketball player in the 70s, won his one championship after how many years in the finals against the Boston Celtics. But what I love most and he was also obviously the the head coach and then the general manager of the Lakers. But what I love about Jerry West the most is he is the NBA logo. Um, he's uh, yes, the guy he who you see on the NBA like that. And he's also like the way he was portrayed in the, in the series, pretty intense man uh, prone to flying off the handle. And, and what a, what a character that you got to s- stand there and talk to him. Like what, a how, I mean, what, what, what kind of a presence was he to be up close and personal with him?
2: Well, it's funny too, because I remember calling him for, he was getting some kind of award and my editor said, why don't you call him and write a column about him getting this award. So I call him and, and he was like, oh, I'm, they're giving me an award? What are they doing? I don't deserve this award. And he spent... I don't want to talk about this. And they spent like half an hour talking about it. Um, but he's <laughs> very humble, very intense. Yeah. Um, you know, he uh, he just had this eye for talent. He, uh, You know, there's been... Uh, periodic movements over the years to change the NBA logo. I mean, there's been suggestions that maybe they should use an image of Kobe Bryant to to update the NBA logo, but I love it. I love it that he's logo man. I think that's the, the ultimate tribute. And, and I, I wouldn't change that at all.
0: Now, now Helene, you uh, covered the 1980 U S Olympic team
2: Mm -hmm.
0: in Lake Placid. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you tell us about that experience?
2: That was, I was working at Newsday then, it was the first Olympics I ever covered, and it just seemed strange to me that you could get in your station wagon and drive to the Olympics, which is what we did from Long Island. Uh, you know, to me, the Olympics always so exotic, you should get on a plane and it should be somewhere in some snowy village in Austria or something, and here we were driving up the north way to Lake Placid. But um, it was a remarkable experience, because as, you know, we all know now, I mean, the uh U.S. team had come to play the Russians at Madison Square Garden and it had been absolutely wiped out, just just totally obliterated. There are not very many expectations for the team. Um, you know, they had youth on their side and we knew that her Brooks had driven them uh, to be very conditioned, very well conditioned, use the legs. The legs feed the wolf was his saying. And that's absolutely so clever. It, it means everything if you think about it. Um, but uh, I remember my editor at Newsday telling me you'll cover figure skating and you'll cover the men, the hockey team. And, you know, after they're eliminated, we'll find other things for you to do. Well, they <laughs> were eliminated. And it just became, it, it became so wonderful because I mean, Herb cast himself as the bad cop and Craig Patrick, who was the mm-hmm. general manager of the team or, you know, worked with, with Herb, Craig became the good cop, you know, Herb would drive these players relentlessly during practices uh, and they would all go to complain to Craig Patrick for, you know, cry on Craig Patrick's shoulder. So he set up this dynamic that really worked. Um, and, and also, I mean, it was, then it was mostly players from Massachusetts or Minnesota and the kids from Massachusetts hated the Minnesota guys and the Minnesota guys thought the Massachusetts guys were, were jerks. So to get them all, un- they were all united on one thing. Hating Herb, <laughs> but, but, but they they knew what he was doing. That didn't mean they liked him. They they recognized the necessity to be so uh, in such good shape and to be in good condition. And obviously, their conditioning, their young legs, did a lot for them along the way. I mean, that was. That, that enabled them to beat. I mean, you look at, I still have the rosters and game sheets and things. Some of those teams, the Czech team, the the uh, Russians, obviously, even the Finns, the Swedes too. I mean, a lot of those players went on to NHL careers. They, they beat some very, very good teams.
0: Right. People think
2: um, that
0: it was just one game and just beating the Russians and that was it. Beating the Russians, it was not the gold medal game. Right. It was be- no. they had to, they had to beat the Finns after beating the Russians to win gold. But you look at Team USA in the nineteen eighty Olympics, and they they went on a run where they beat a whole slew of great teams along the way to get there. It was not just a one hit wonder, one game, and 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 you know the 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 movie. Miracle, based on the USA gold medal team, um, very much was focused on the game against the Russians. And you would think that that was the game when they won gold.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: it actually, I remember the Olympics well that year, that year and who doesn't? It, it, I mean, it, it's remarkable to think that the games weren't even broadcast live on ABC.
2: Right, right. People forget that. That's
0: crazy. It's and- crazy. They
2: weren't even broadcast live. Um, and the other too, is, I mean, Lake Placid is this little small village in the Adirondack Mountains. And, you know, back then there was no Internet. There were no cell phones. I think CNN was on the air, but there was no, you know, 24-hour. There was no ESPN. There was no real strong connection to the world. And, you know, it, it was hard to know when you're in Lake Placid isolated in this little village, what the rest of the world was thinking. And the only way you could know that the U S team was starting to get people's attention was people would send telegrams and some official of team USA would tape them up on the wall in the arena. So you'd see, you know, Joe Blow from uh, Minnetonka, Minnesota said, go Team USA. And, you know, so-and-so from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin sent in a telegram saying, we love you guys. And the wall just gradually became covered with all these telegrams. And that was really the only way we knew that it was making an impression outside of Lake Placid. We had no way of knowing that.
1: Wow. Wow. You know, I... I, I um I want to ask you because that, you know, when you talk to certain sports writers, sports commentators, even people that call games, they do so many of them that sometimes they it it just kind of blurs together and they don't remember the moment and the feeling. But I think when you talk to uh, journalists like yourself, you know, your your job is to capture that moment and relay it via written word to the rest of us. What was it like when they won that game? Can you remember the feeling in that arena? It and was, you remember how you felt? Yeah,
2: It was this incredible sense of disbelief, of joy, of, you know, you have to remember too, the context of the political atmosphere of the time was very, very tense. Cold um, war, Afghanistan invasion. Exactly. Exactly. So this wasn't just a game. It became this kind of thing of political system versus political system, which it wasn't. But, you know, that's how people saw it. And that's that's what people brought to it. Um, you know, I, I remember going outside afterward and uh the streets were full. People were just dancing and singing and jumping up and down and I somehow ended up standing next to a Russian, I don't know if he was an official or a fan or whatever, but he was wearing, you know, the, the big uh poof bushy hat, you know, and um yeah. the furry hat, excuse Cossack me. Cossack hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And a uh, big coat and everything. And I was just kind of watching and I, I glanced over at him and he saw me look at, at, at him and he holds up his in, index finger and he goes, one, you are number one. And I thought that was so cool. That was just so that cool. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was it just, uh, people were just dancing in the streets. It was just an, an incredible feeling. And uh, Main Street in Lake Placid isn't very big, but I remember going outside the side door to the arena right next to the high school, and it was just jam full of people. It was incredible.
0: What was it like uh, for you interviewing the players uh, if you had a chance to do that after the uh, gold medal game?
2: I remember they brought them to the high school which was right next door, the auditorium in the high school. And, um, you know, Herb had not spoken very much during the tournament, and he sometimes didn't want players to speak too. But obviously you just, you know, you can't prevent them from speaking after a game like that. I remember guys sprawled out on the stage and just kind of, uh, you know, just, just so happy. They they were out of their minds, basically. They were just, uh, you know, they were just so happy about the whole thing and just so uh, almost in disbelief because, you know, 99 times out of 100, Russia's going to beat them. That was the one in the 100. And mm-hmm. I think they realized it, too. I mean, obviously, they earned it. They deserve that win. But so many things had to come together so perfectly for that to happen. You know, the, the Russians to pull the goalie after two periods, uh, you know, the U.S. to have all those Horrible drills—they called them Herbies—that were designed to build up players' strength and stamina and their legs. They were the U.S. was the fresher team later in the games because of all those drills that they hated that Herb put them through. But they all paid off.
0: Right, right. So, uh, looking back on uh, at, on your career, as one is opt um, uh, uh, to do at this time, what are some of your greatest memories uh, things that have stood out to you that you recall that maybe no one else has ever heard about before or you've never shared?
2: Oh wow uh, maybe I ought to save that for a book. I don't know um...
0: <laughs> well, that's that's my next question. Have you I was gonna ask that too <laughs> Have you thought about writing a book about your illustrious career?
2: I really haven't only because, I mean, other female sports writers before me have done the Women in the Locker Room book. And uh, I don't know how much I could have to add to that. But I mean, for me, it's, it's mostly about just making connections and, and big moments. I mean, you know, at Newsday during the Islanders for straight cups, I don't think we appreciated what went into that. And how difficult, how incredibly Mm -hmm. difficult that was. And here we are 40-plus years later. Nobody's won three in a row, let alone four. And I don't think anybody ever will. Uh, And if I recall correctly, the 1980 Islanders, their first cup, that was the first year you had to play four rounds.
0: Yes. Yep. And Kenny Morrow, who won the U.S. Olympic gold medal Mm -hmm. in February, right after the Olympics, joined the Islanders and won the cup. Yep, so he won an Olympic gold medal and a Stanley Cup within four months of each other.
2: Right. Uh, the man uh, had good timing there. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> watching guys like Mike Bossy, who I think is still the best pure goal scorer I've ever seen. Um, mm. You know that that Islander team. You know they weren't playing in New York City. They didn't get the publicity that the Rangers did. You know, going. They didn't go to nightclubs. They weren't, uh, you know, making page six of the New York Post. They weren't doing those kind of things.
0: They weren't dating supermodels.
2: They were not dating supermodels, <laughs> um, But, you know, just the the incredible character on that team, Trottier, Gillies, Bossy. I always like Dave Langevin, Stephen Person, um, just incredible. Bill, Billy Smith. Billy Smith. People with oh, just,
0: Billy
2: Smith. just goofy yeah, character and just... Think about what it takes to win all those, uh, what was it, four or 16, so 19 playoff series in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Because they made it to the finals in the fifth year. I don't think anybody will ever do that again. It's just so hard now because of Allen's favorite uh, salary cap. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, You know, I don't want to say. Oh, you've heard, have you? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I don't think it'll happen again. It's just too difficult now.
1: I love that story of um, you know Wayne Gretzky walking by, and i don 't know if it 's apocryphal or not, but there's that story of in one thousand nine hundred and eighty three Wayne Gretzky walking by the islanders' dressing room after losing uh, his first finals to the islanders, and I think that was six or seven games and instead of celebrations in the in the uh, dressing room, uh, the guys were sitting around basically putting themselves patching themselves back together. Um, because you know they had won the cup, but they had really given everything to do it, and he said that gave him the the motivation. I'm not sure I want to ask you, is that story true by the way?
2: See, I'm not sure about that, but I do remember because I remember standing backstage and um it was the year Billy Smith won the con Smythe. um and you know, he had been just so critical of Gretzky, he would say, you know, you got to take him by his hand and introduce him to his own goaltender. Because, you know, he would say Gretz doesn't play defense. And, um, you know, he would call him Wine Gretzky and things like that. So here is Billy Smith winning the Con Smythe. And Gretzky is standing there waiting to go on stage to talk and Smith Billy Smith, you know, comes out he's still wearing his goalie pads and everything, and he you know trudges off the stage. Gretzky sticks out his hand to shake his hand. And again, remember the the, the name calling back and forth and how they really how Smith mm-hmm. just mercilessly mocked him. And Smith almost walked by, but then he just very quickly like tapped his hand and and kept walking by. But I I thought that was a behind the scenes moment that, that I thought was, was really cool. Um, You know, I I think, yeah, yeah. Um, The Islanders were just an unusual group. And again, I don't think anybody's going to win four cups in a row. Again, it's just not engineered to happen.
1: Bossy wasn't a Gretzky fan either, right? There was some, there was some tension there. Is that true?
2: I don't know. I don't know that to be true, to be honest with you.
1: I just know that Mike Bossy was extraordinarily so, competitive. I know that.
2: <laughs> yes. Yes, he was.
0: Let's go ahead, Alan. Sorry. So Helene, you talked about, you, you talked about um, uh, lockouts and, uh, and we uh, always had a lot of communication going back and forth during uh, the 0405 lockout. And you wrote a, a beautiful column when it was over and i think i gave you a quote uh, for for that column and the 12 13 uh lockout what was your what was your overall sense during these lockouts of of what was going on in the game and the impact those lockouts have had on the game and the nhl salary cap and you know, you know me long enough to know that whatever your opinions are, you're not going to offend me at all in any way. So, <laughs> what do you think?
2: Well, I think first of all, it's it's sad in a way that we have to specify which lockout we're talking about because there've been so many, and uh, that's not like any other sport. You know, you have to specify. No, the ninety four ninety five lockout. No, the oh four oh four. No, the twelve thirteen. Um, you know. It, and it's, it's true. I mean, what other sport has done that? Um, so, you know, I know that you're a, a big, uh, uh, voice against the salary cap. I'm not sure that taking that away would continue to allow for a competition. Um, I know that you're a big, uh, guy saying that the game should be promoted more. And I agree. I, I'm just wondering where the next revenue sources are going to come from, to be on, perfectly honest with you. I mean, we're seeing a revolution now in media rights, streaming, as mm-hmm. opposed, you know, moving away from cable and, uh, conventional, traditional TV towards streaming. Um, you know, you look, cutting at the, the cords. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You look at the media rights fees that other leagues are getting and you have to, you know, for the N- the NHL has a deal that's good for the NHL. But how do you grow the audience? I'm not sure that they know how to do that. How do you grow the audience so that there is a greater demand so that you can get the bigger media rights fees? That's where the money is. And, you know, they talk about expansion and, you know, there's already so many teams. Um, I don't know that you can support 34 teams. If you can't support a team in Phoenix, you can't get that team in Arizona some stability. And I've been reading lately about the attendance problems in Winnipeg. And I feel sorry Mm -hmm. for the situation there. I mean, when it comes to making a decision between paying your rent and buying a hockey ticket, there's something wrong. And the NHL remains the most gate-dependent of all the leagues because it doesn't get the media rights fees and the sponsorship fees and and that kind of revenue that the other leagues get. Um, I think the NHL needs to really examine the way it can and should grow. I think we need to see some new ideas. I mean, I love the outdoor games, but those have limited appeal, I think. You know, you build up to it on the day. Okay, great. It's a lovely spectacle, but then it's gone. What legacy does that leave? What? How does that grow the game? I'm not sure it does. And I don't have the answers, but I'd like to see some people try some unconventional things. I'd like to see some people... Recognize that you need to to help kids afford to be able to play hockey in a lot of places.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I th- I think that um, th- there's been a tremendous lost opportunity um, on the international side, um, yep. not having a World Cup since uh, World Cup of hockey since 2016, and and um, not having regular. Best on best tournaments. Um, you see the NBA, you know, they get the players and the league and people together and, and the stakeholders in the game and they come up with an in season tournament and boom, they execute it and then they learn from it. This is what worked well. This is what maybe didn't work well. And we're going to tweak it for next time. And they sold the the in-season tournament with additional media rights fees and and brought mm-hmm. you know a new exciting level of interest into the game from people who may not have been casual fans and to have to this day connor mcdavid not wearing the canadian jersey as a professional um, it is just an incredible lost opportunity and why, you know, you put people in the room and. Why not do, you know, a Ryder's Cup kind of North America against the World Tournament? What about a three-on-three tournament? Three-on-three hockey, overtime hockey for five minutes is some of the most incredible, exciting hockey. Why not get these people together and throw all this against the wall and see what sticks and have energy and creativity and excitement around growing the game? And instead... It's just dormant there are there is no critical thinking, there's no creative thinking there's no there, try something and if it doesn't work it doesn't work but tr- for the for the love of God try it and 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 you know it, people look at yeah. people look at the NHL now and they're like, whoa, it's a six billion dollar industry. Gary has done a great job in growing the game. Do you know where it should be right now? It should be over 10 billion. it should be 12 billion. Why are you happy with where it is today?
2: Well two, two points. Uh, first, um, you know to go back to the NBA and the in-season tournament, they held their finals in a city that doesn't even have an NBA franchise. Their final right. the finals in Vegas. Yep. So, you know, you talk about growth opportunities, and you know very well that there's going to be an NBA team in Vegas within the next couple of years, and that's just going for to be sure. staggering. And the Golden Knights deserve an enormous amount of credit for po- for paving the way for that. Everything that they've done has been so spot on in terms of, you know, just from even from starting They would not sell blocks of season tickets to casinos. They wanted to make sure they were selling to individual season ticket holders. You know, they could have, I'm sure, sold out the place just to casinos and have the casinos give tickets away to to high rollers or whatever. But they wanted to build a base, a stable, sustainable base. And they did it brilliantly. Everything they've done has been brilliant. I think the other thing, too, though, and... Um, you know, you talk about international growth for the NHL, and obviously that's a big thing for them to go back to the Olympics is essential. I honestly think you still need domestic growth in the NHL. Mm -hmm. In American Mm -hmm. cities, you need more kids to start playing hockey. And eventually these kids will become ticket buyers. They'll become corporate vice presidents who who say, hey, I want my company to associate with the NHL. You need to get beyond the very fanatic but limited base that hockey has now
1: yes yes can i throw i want to throw something out there too guys what i've always been surprised about with nhl uh, with the nhl is why they've never driven an initiative for a value brand of hockey equipment And what i mean by that is you know you've got toyota and you've got acura you've got honda sorry Honda and Acura, you got Toyota, you got Lexus, you've got Volkswagen, you have Audi. You know, all of the brands that sell hockey equipment, the things that make hockey and youth sports unaffordable are going for the premium buy. I, I have an enormous head, like a bi- physically big head. <laughs> and so for me to get a hockey helmet, I've got to go to a specialized and try to find, and I got to stretch them out or whatever. I've been wearing the same Nike helmet for 20 years because I still can't find one. Tried to replace it a couple years ago. It was $300 for a helmet for men's league. You know, uh, why is it like, you know, you've got CCM, you got Bauer, you got a, whoever else is making hockey equipment. They all seem to be going for the for the um, for the premium buy. I'm really surprised that the NHL's never spearheaded some sort of scalable, low cost. Here's your entry level equipment for house league players to just give it a try. And why doesn't the NHL have community rinks and community leagues and things like that that it supports to help grow this game? Because as we've seen in the experiments in Florida and in in, uh, in Southern California, in Tennessee, it's working. It could just be working a lot faster if they juiced it a little.
2: I agree. And I think that, you know, some teams do have initiatives. The Flyers for many years have been active in the community. You know, the Kings and the Ducks have both made concerted efforts here in, in Southern California. But As much as they can subsidize it, it's still a very expensive sport. You know, you want to go play basketball at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is get a pair of sneakers, change into a T-shirt and shorts. Okay. You want to go play hockey at lunchtime. That's a much bigger endeavor. You've got to rent ice time. You've got to have the equipment. You have to have enough players. I mean, it's just basketball. You can play with two people. You can't play hockey with two people. It's not the same. And it's not the same mindset. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., you know, guys might get to the people who work together might get together to play basketball after work, mm-hmm. or they don't do that for hockey or very rarely. Again, because of the, the inconvenience, because of the elaborate preparations you have to make to play hockey. I'm not sure that's curable, to be honest. I mean, just the nature of hockey, you need to play on a mm-hmm. ring. That's going to be expensive. You know, renting ice time. You know when the Kings and the Ducks were went through uh, ten or twelve years where they were both so good and winning the Cup and making it to the finals and all, that set off a boom of rinks rink building here in Southern California or renovating yeah. older existing rinks. And I mean, you know, Alan, your your kids were, were playing and you would schlep them to you know Paramount and Pasadena and Lakewood and you know all over creation and Panorama you know, City and Valencia. Absolutely and you know the ducks opened an incredible facility in Irvine uh with is it five sheets of ice there um you know figures that's become a huge figure skating haven uh, some you know world class figure skating uh pair of figure skaters train there um there's the ice time is just so expensive the the equipment is just so expensive i mean you can have you can go to elementary schools and give kids you know, plastic sticks and rubber balls and they can run around in, in sneakers and, you know, play ball hockey on, on a, in a schoolyard. I'm not sure that sticks. You know what I mean? I'm not sure that creates a, a, a lifelong love of the game. Maybe it does. I would hope it does, but there are some problems mm-hmm. inherent in this sport. It's a wonderful sport. We all love it. We love the people who play it. I mean, I still think hockey players are the most down-to-earth and approachable and, and decent, hardworking, team-oriented guys of all the sports I've covered, but there are just some conditions in the sport that are really difficult to overcome.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, in the NHL CBA, mm-hmm. there is something called the Industry Growth Fund, mm-hmm. which is basically Gary's slush fund that he can use to um, dedicate to various communities for initiatives to grow the game. That's the purpose of that of that fund, and it, it it's never been, um, in my humble opinion, used in the right way to do all the things, Helene, that you just talked about to make that investment in growing hockey at the grassroots level. There's so much talk about it. And there's a lot of PR around various um, um, initiatives around the U S but it's, it's like, okay, somebody is doing something. Let's promote the hell out of it to show everybody what we're doing, but it's not a sustained well thought out um, program to really make an impact now and down the road. And the money dedicated to these initiatives, it's just, we're going to throw a little bit of money here. Let's do something. Let's get some media around it. And there we've checked off that item and see, we are doing something. Nobody's going to say we're not doing something, but it has a very, it's had a very minimal impact on actually growing the game and doing all the things that Elaine just talked about that needs to be done to really take hockey to the next level in the United States.
2: Yeah. And another thing too, is, um, you know, you look at TV presentation and, you know, the NHL is back on ESPN, which uh, is obviously something that Gary Bettman wanted. They considered it prestigious, but, you know, I've, Written a lot of basketball columns too I've, I've done you know Lakers and Clippers stuff I will turn into TNT's NBA telecasts Even if the game is not one that I Particularly want to watch because I love Watching Charles Barkley I just think that That studio crew that they have Is just magical They make yes. it fun They're not forcing It it's natural I mean I watch some of the NHL telecasts And it's just I just cringe sometimes to be honest with you. It's so forced. In, in, and in fact, if you look at the TNT desk
0: and and what they have done with with Biz and and Gretzky, um and and when, you know, Rick Tockett was on, I mean, they were able to create uh, a a little bit a tiny little bit of magic and 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 personality and 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 interest I mean, I looked forward to when games last year and this year are on TNT because you get that added, um, uh, the stuff they bring away from just watching the game. And I know that people that I talk to love you know, a, a character and personality like Biz. He's the Charles Barkley of NHL analysts right now. Uh, whether you like it or not and uh and and you know that's great for the game and yeah. he's outspoken and he's opinionated and all of that is just wonderful to see
2: but i'd like to see the nhl be a little bit more forward on that too a little bit more progressive on that too and you know not necessarily we don't have to go back to glow pucks you know the fox glow puck um or you know although i wouldn't mind having peter puck back i always like peter puck but um you know <laughs> what can you do i would like to see them be more experimental I'd like to see them and that isn't just you know putting microphones on players and i i don't know what there is to do and and you know if i had great ideas somebody would pay me for them and i wouldn't be sitting here right now but um you know I, you're in a situation where you need to be noticed you want a bigger audience do something different. Be distinctive. Right. Get out there.
1: Well, I know somebody with, uh, I've never met them in person, but with, you know, 25, 30, 40 years of experience around the game who might, sh- you know, now might have time to write a book about it. <laughs> Just a thought. Maybe, uh, Helen, maybe, maybe, maybe that's your book. Maybe it's, it's what the NHL can do to grow the game. Uh, I mean, it, seriously. There'd be few people who have seen it and I I'm not blowing smoke here. There's been few people that have seen it grow the way that it has for as many years as you have, being around as many stars as you have. You know, could could that be something that you would even consider coming back and even writing guest columns about?
2: Um I hadn't thought about that. That's—I uh, guess you're now my co-author. or I owe you a, a slice if I ever do it. <laughs> no, so, uh, no, no, no. That's it's that's all yours. Part of the paycheck, <laughs> but you know. And again, you know, this is a sport we love. These are players we love, and sometimes it's just infuriating to see that they don't capitalize on their best asset, which is their players. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Helene, you wrote in your in your column yesterday. The right moment, it's the right moment to jump off the cliff and hope to land on a pile of soft foam blocks instead of a row of jagged rocks. What do you what do you mean by that?
2: I don't know what's next. Um, I don't have anything lined up. I mean, people have said, oh, so you're going to go to this place or that place. I'm going, no, I have nothing set up. I have nothing, uh, nothing planned at all. Um, you know, I, I did this for a long time, and the stresses of the business has changed. You know, um, the yeah. the the set post game situations have changed. The uh, just ev- the deadlines have changed. The editors. I mean, we used to have a sports editor at the LA Times. His name was Bill Dwyer. And I used to joke with him about how he hated hockey. And he would always tell me he won a writing prize when he worked for the paper in Milwaukee for a piece he did on Bobby Hall. Now, he wasn't a huge hockey fan, but he recognized that there was an audience and he made sure we covered hockey. I'd go to the Stanley Cup finals. If I had an idea to do something on Mario Lemieux, he'd let me go to Pittsburgh. If I had an idea to do something on a Ranger or Buffalo Sabre or whatever, he would send me to those places. He would, you know, when Lisa Dillman was covering the Kings, she was on the road all the time. He recognized there was a need to cover hockey. Now we don't have that anymore. Um, You know, everything is dictated by the number of clicks on our website. And they'll, Determine future coverage based on, and I understand you want to, the idea is to give people what they want to read. And if people have demonstrated that they most often want to read the Dodgers, they most want to read about the Lakers, they want to read about USC football, UCLA basketball. I understand that. Let's give that to them. But there was always just a a nobility to it that I liked that, you know, you may not know you want to read about water polo. But when I present this column about this young woman of the U.S. national water polo team, the goalkeeper is a a young black woman. And she has had an incredible story about learning how to swim and learning how to play water polo and the, the obstacles she's faced. Well, I think people deserve to read about her. Maybe she won't get as many web hits as a Lakers column would. But you may learn something from reading about this young woman or reading about a figure skater, reading about a a young tennis player. I mean, there's so many wonderful stories out there to be told. And it seems to me we're narrowing our focus when we should be making it broader. And so that's been a source of frustration for me. And, you know, none of us is getting younger. Um, it's, It's a little more difficult, you know, Coming home from games at one o'clock in the morning on the 405 freeway or the 110 freeway uh, isn't very glamorous and isn't very much fun anymore. So, you know, things have changed. I felt it was time instead of just, I could have just trudged along, I could have kept going, but I just felt it was time to just make a change.
0: And, uh, what would be? Do you have any plans for the next couple of months? Do you have any idea of what you're going to do when, um, when you are officially no longer with the times anymore?
2: I'm officially as of today no longer with the times. So, uh, um, wow! But uh, Is today,
0: today's—I guess today would be the first day.
2: Today's the first day of the rest of my life. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> um And it's odd. I mean, I my entire adult life, I've had a a job, I work for a daily newspaper, and I don't anymore, which is kind of a strange uh, feeling. But, you know, I'd like to do some freelance writing at some point, you know, uh, right now, I just need time to get my life together and just kind of uh, figure out what's next, Uh, you know, not have to go drive on the 110 at, at one in the morning, not have to listen to uh, an athlete tell me, "Well, it is what it is." No, it isn't. Stop saying that. <laughs> um, you know, and
1: that, and that, Alan yeah. hates that. By the way, hates that's another
2: that. <laughs> thing too. Is it and it goes back to what I was saying about you know the NHL not capitalizing on the players and their unique stories and everything. There's just so much control. The teams want to control the messages now. And I get it, there aren't as many daily newspapers or magazines traveling to cover teams anymore. You know, Toronto would come in, there used to be five writers, now there's maybe one. Um, You know, Edmonton came to the LA last week and there was one writer um, who didn't work for the team. You know, so teams have their website people and writers and videos, and they're trying to get out their message that way. But they restrict access to players now so badly. That you don't feel like you get to know these guys anymore, and that's really a shame. I mean, you used to be able to go into the locker room after practice and just sit there, and you know somebody's sitting there. You strike up a conversation, maybe at least you're writing about something. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just you know you strike up a friendship. You just learn a little bit about a guy and what makes him tick. You can't do that anymore. You go in the in the room now after practice, and you have to have requested players, and there's usually two players, maybe three. Mm-hmm. And that hurts your ability to, to cover the team on a regular basis if you don't know these guys as well. And you, and I think it hurts hockey too. And that, you know, you're not getting these stories out there. You're not giving us access to these guys who have some really interesting stories to tell. And we can't tell them if they're not, not being made available.
0: How insane is that? I mean, we, I, I have seen uh, from my vantage point you know, a lot of writers, um, being squeezed out, um, with their newspapers, uh, going to work for the league and, 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 you know, God bless them. They're, they're doing a great job. They're doing everything they can. And in many situations, you know, this is a profession, you need a job, you need to get paid. And we all understand and recognize that, but, how free are they when they're working for the league, and and writing for example NHL.com or working for a club and having a you know get paid by the club? How free are they to criticize the league? You know the
2: answer to How that. How free
0: are they? Oh, yeah. well, we, we 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 know the answer, and a lot of that is almost. I had the feeling when that trend started that the league was rubbing their hands together saying, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, we're now going to have our own army of writers working for us, paid by us, who mm-hmm. will no longer be out there. And those are the people that are going to get the limited access we're willing to grant. Exactly. And the, and the writers mm-hmm. will be telling the stories we want told. Exactly. And, and, and I just think that has... That is so bad for the game, and and really bad for journalism. Um, and 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 I've and I've I've said this, and I've said this to to many people. We know how it works. We know the way the game works behind the scenes, and, and I just think it is very very short sighted. Why is there such an obsessiveness of uh, of maintaining control? it's not a bad thing to have a diversity of opinion and it's not a bad thing to be criticized. Are you so insecure that a writer will write something critical that, that in the old days would maybe spark change mm-hmm. and, and have people re, you know, consider another another way of looking at a situation and are they so insecure that, no, we're going to stamp out any criticism, and 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 really, it has done the game a great disservice.
2: Absolutely agree, and and again, I understand why teams have their website writers, and uh, you know, again, there's so much change in the media business. You know, there there would be three or four or five local papers, or uh, you know, would cover a the Kings, for example, you know, and the last couple of years, the LA times wasn't covering Kings home games, which is to my mind was just, I just hated that. But those, those decisions were made above me. And, um, you know, you, again, visiting teams come in and you don't see the number of people that you used to see. You would see the team's website people. And I get it. The teams get, want to get a lot coverage. So they hired these writers to, tell the stories of their players with a slant of course they're going to emphasize all the good stuff they're going to dig really really hard sometimes to find positives when there really aren't positives to be found um i don't know what the answer is but again it's just it's just so for that's one of the frustrations that i found in this business this last few years and um you know just i wanted to you You'd had to specifically request a player, and if other writers didn't want to talk to the player you requested, maybe you didn't get that player at all. Um, it just became so frustrating when you know there are stories to be told and you're not given the access to tell the stories. Um, the business has changed, life has changed, and I don't want to sound like an old fuddy-duddy. Uh you know, I am. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, old man yelling at the sky at the cloud, you know. Um, but you know, there are some things that used to be better that have vanished. And, and among those things was the ability to just, I remember when I was covering the Rangers and they were practicing at Rye Playland, you'd just walk into the room and guys would be sitting there. You talk to somebody, you walk in the door, somebody says, hello, maybe you stop and talk to them, or you go walk over to talk to somebody else, or you just can observe the banter between players, you know, players joking with each other, players talking to each other players, you know, um, maybe somebody has some kind of, uh, photo of his kid in his locker and you ask about that and then it comes out, ends up being a really good story. You don't see that. You don't get to experience that anymore. And you lose so much because of that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Helene, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And uh, I I don't want to keep you any longer than we already have. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for honoring us with your presence. Uh, there is nobody that I respect more than you in the game. Um, you're an incredible journalist and an even better person. And I wish you mm-hmm. all the happiness and, uh, and joy that life can bring from this point forward. I know in my heart that our paths will cross again I, so. I just don't know, I just don't are. know when and where, but they will. And uh, and thank you so much for bringing so much to so many people, including me. Um, and uh, I learned from you. I I admired you. I enjoyed every column you ever wrote, and uh, and seeing you at the rinks was always a great joy. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it.
0: This has been Agent Provocateur with Ellen Walsh and Adam Wild. Follow Ellen Walsh on Twitter at Walsh. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com/sdpn.